0: We all intuitively understand that the biblical authors were divinely inspired by God. This is something that not only do we see evidence for in the Scripture, but we're also told that pretty expressly in Scripture. The fact that he can even speak to us with our little tiny minds is an incredible thing that he's gifted us with. And so when we see that the Bible is, in one sense, this this finite book, you know, it, it has a beginning page and an ending page, it's bound between two covers, We should also not be surprised that we can study it endlessly. And there's always something to understand clearer and with more depth. And so it should make sense also that as the biblical authors were writing, there was things that they also had to look into for themselves to gain clarity and depth. Because God speaks to or through people. And it takes time to discern all of what's being said by design. This is something that God intended. If you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll see an example of the Bible telling us that there were things that the biblical authors were writing that were just hard to really get a a full grasp of. We'll start reading in verse 10. Peter says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so the prophets of old were writing down things, and they had to inquire deeply. They had to, even in some cases, ask God flat out, "What does all of this mean?" What is this leading to? Is this, who is this talking about right here? Who is this person to come? They had things that they didn't fully understand that would be revealed in time. Uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. Here's an express example of this happening. So not only does Peter say that it did happen, but we have an example here from Daniel um, inquiring about some of these things. Daniel chapter 12, we'll start reading in verse 8. So Daniel has just had incredible visions. He has spoken with angelic heavenly beings, and they've told him about things that are coming, some horrible and some incredible. And he says this in Daniel twelve eight: I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So the things that Daniel was seeing and hearing, that he was commanded to write down, but they were veiled from him in a certain way. He didn't totally grasp, he didn't have the benefit of living at a future time when he could look back over all of the history or all the books that would be written after the book of Daniel and say, okay, how do we piece all this together? He saw in part. We see a little bit more clearly now, but there's still things even now that we look at in the Bible and we say, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to be fulfilled, or I'm not sure what that's going to look like, or how does this verse match up with this verse? And this is part of what it means for Scripture to be divine. It is God-inspired, and with that comes a level of timely unfolding. Clarity of Scripture came in time as certain things were fulfilled, and the same continues to be true today. However... While the Bible is absolutely a work of God, it is divinely inspired, he also used man to accomplish it. And that's a beautiful thing. And so while these authors were divinely inspired, we need to remember that they were also just that, authors. They are writing with specific understanding of certain things with intents or purposes behind their messages and with certain audiences in mind. So there's absolutely an element of the heavenly where things are intricately woven and somehow they're able to operate line upon line across different books, across different times, across different authors and cultures and personalities. But there's also an element of the earthly that God was able to work through that follows various writing styles and personalities, and cultural influences. Now often, on discovering the human and earthly aspect of the Bible, one of two things happens for two very different reasons. Skeptics will look at these things and they'll try and point them out as contradictions. Um, they'll they'll either say like, okay, well, uh, this scripture and this scripture They're supposed to be talking about the same thing, but they they seem to contradict, and I don't understand it. So it must be flawed. It must not be from this God that you're talking about. Or they'll point to Scripture and parallel it with some other fact in the universe. Well, the Bible says this is how this thing happens, but we know the science behind it. We know how things are supposed to work. Here's a contradiction between what the Bible says and what we know to be real. This is something that happens when people notice the human element in the Bible. Often... Believers will have their trust in Scripture shaken because things don't seem to line up with reality somehow. They'll hear these skeptics talking about it and they'll think, man, I, I really don't know how to answer some of these contradictions. I don't know how to answer what this says versus what I see to be true in the real world. And so they can get their their trust shaken in the scripture. And certain theologians and apologists, they've covered this time and time again. One of my favorites is Detective J. Warner Wallace. He was a cold case detective from many years ago. He basically approaches the Bible like a cold case detective, looking at some of the narrative accounts and saying, does this match what eyewitness accounts should look like? He's seen a lot of eyewitness accounts in his time. And so he kind of compares what he knows from his experience uh, compared to what the Bible says. So he's talked about this. Also, Lee Strobel has pointed this out. And they point out if they were any more precise in how they're stated, any cold case detective would look at those statements and say, there's collusion going on. If me and another person witness something and we go and give an account of that thing, if our stories line up too well, cold case detectives throw it out because it's just too good. It seems like these people colluded. And so there has to be a level of Discrepancy without the truth of the matter being false in order for two eyewitness accounts to be verified. Now, skeptics are often going to go ahead and and read contradictions where they want them to be. You could go in and you could say, like, well, this isn't a contradiction, it's just a matter of human perspective, eyewitnessing an account. They're going to say, I don't care about that, it should line up perfectly. So, you're not going to convince people all the time, they're going to read contradictions where, where they'd like them to be. It's honestly rare that you're going to find a well-meaning skeptic who is just curious about, well, I read this verse, and I read this verse, and I don't really know how they line up. Can you explain it to me? Now, sometimes you will, so don't just shut down everybody coming to you with questions because that's something we can be in danger of, too. Sometimes people do just genuinely want to know, why does this verse say this, and this verse say this, and they just don't seem to match up? You'll actually find this a lot of times in believers. We'll ask each other that, right? I was reading this, I don't know how it pairs with this, right? A lot of times you'll find well-meaning believers, the skeptics are often trying to make you stumble. So just be prepared, but don't be so eager to shut people down. But believers who read through the Bible aren't always shaken by a few verses that seem contradictory, but about various accounts that say things that are actually too similar. And I've come across this even in my own friend group, people that will study the Bible and they get to a certain level of biblical study and they'll say, Micah, I don't know. These guys are claiming to be talking about something that historically and verifiably happened and yet their story is almost written in too perfect a way that makes me think it didn't happen how they said it was going to happen. I'm not sure what to do about this. And we're a very empirically... Minded people in the Western world. We want to know, did this happen exactly like this, or are they lying to me? There is no in-between in our minds. But we want to know, it's like, are you telling me the truth or are you lying? Did this happen exactly like this, or are you trying to deceive me in some way? Malicious intent or absolute benevolence? That's that's all we have. No room for middle ground. But we should. In our minds, truth Means accuracy or exactitude. And while I agree that truth is not variable, perception or a message about historical events can be. Now, what I'm going to do right now is a little bit unorthodox, but I hope it proves a point. All right, all I need you to do is listen. No special assignment, just listen to what's being played. Okay. Now, if everyone here were going to report on what just happened, what in the world that was, of course there would be different accounts about what just happened. Someone who is more skeptical, who is reading the accounts of what happened, might say, well, clearly all of these people are lying, because their accounts don't line up. They didn't tell me all of the sounds that were played in that soundbite. They didn't say how long it lasted for. They want empirical truth, factual data, and you didn't deliver because your accounts were a little bit different. That's what skeptics might say. But someone who believed that something did clearly happen here at church would have to sift through all the differences in what you guys heard and what you wrote down about what you heard to try and find out exactly what happened. This is what happens in the Bible. So consider this. These differences that are gonna be in all of our accounts about what we just heard are going to be along different lines of thinking. Who is reporting? So which one of you is the, the report from? Who are they reporting to? What was their experience? And what is their purpose for reporting? So for example, Dottie Seifert might write to someone who couldn't attend services this week and she might say, Micah played a clip of all these weird sounds, but it was a little bit funny. She might say that, giving me the benefit of the doubt, which I'd really appreciate. But she's just reporting some facts about what happened. Max, on the other hand, might write something to me and say, dude, I cannot believe you played All Star by Smash Mouth. Because he knows that song. He heard that amidst all the other noise, right? But he might not focus on some of the other things, Jim Hopkins writing to Len Martin might say, he just stood up there smiling the entire time while he played circus noises. And he's not entirely wrong. He was focused on what I was doing while all of this was happening. He heard kind of a vague circus sound. He didn't hear crickets. He didn't even report about the cricket sound I had in there. And yet there were crickets, so is he lying? No, it's a different perspective. Bev Galley, she might say to someone that's visiting for the first time, yeah, we don't always play strange sounds. And uh, Micah had a tiger roaring in that and crickets chirping just to illustrate a point this once. This isn't a typical practice. She'd be defending me. And this is a different person writing, a different perspective, a different experience, and a different purpose for why why she's writing all this and who she's writing to as well. So not only were the experiences of each person different, But they are constructing their retelling of the narrative based on who they're writing to and why they are writing. They each want specific things to come out in their retelling of the events. Dottie is just sharing a story. Max is trying to share a joke with me. Jim's trying to get me off the speaking schedule. (laughs) Bev, (laughs) Bev is defending me. Now, none of this makes the event itself less true. None of the differences in the narrative account are truly contradictory or false, and none of the perspectives are wrong, and yet they're all different. So when we see these things in Scripture that seem almost too good to be true, we need to remember a few things. One, if it were the opposite and things didn't line up so well, we'd hate that. That would just be the worst. We'd be no better than skeptics saying, see, these people have no idea what they're writing down. They're writing contradictory accounts. If it lines up too well, we've got a problem. If it lines up not well enough, we've got a problem. So we don't want that. Number two, sometimes God can just make things happen that line up so well that it amazes us. This is a truth about God. It is actually a proof that he is God. That he can work through flawed human beings with their own free will, their own perspectives, and still have something perfect come out of that. That's amazing. And so we can't reject this because in reality it's a proof that God is who he says he is. And then number three, the human element in the Bible and the narrative license used by the authors to communicate certain points don't make the Bible false or inaccurate. Instead, we should try and ask ourselves, why did they write it in this way? And what are they trying to tell us, the readers? Or what are they trying to tell their audience of their time? This is a really important aspect of reading things in context that we often forget. Often when we think about reading in context, we want to say, okay, well, we need to get the surrounding verses around this one verse to get some some more context. Yes, that's a great practice. Or we'll say, well, we need to understand the history of what's going on at this time so we can understand what's being said. Yes, absolutely, that's incredibly important for context. But also, yes, remembering that these authors are in fact authors and they're using literary elements to communicate a message that doesn't take away from the truth of Scripture is also incredibly important. So with our remaining time today, I'd like to look at an example of this. And I want to look at three different historical events in the Bible, specifically the life of Jesus Christ, that I fully believe happened as written, but they also bear the marks of intentional writing on the parts of the author. So if you would turn with me to Matthew 3. I'm going to be kind of giving parallel accounts between Matthew and Mark. They both do the same thing, and I think it's you can see it in either account you follow, either book or either author that you follow. I think they just, each one brings out a little bit of something different. So we're not going to be comparing the, we're not going to be doing like a harmonization of different authors. We're going to be looking at the specific accounts and comparing them between each other. This will make sense as we go on. Matthew chapter three, this is going to be a lot of text. So I hope you guys are ready. Matthew three and verse one. I had, Bear in mind, I had to come up with this like, fairly short notice. So if we're short, you'll be happy with me. And the more we can be in the Bible and not hear from me, the happier all of us are going to be. So as much text as I can read is going to be good. But Matthew chapter three, starting in verse one, this is about Jesus' baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight." And this is Matthew talking about John. I used to read this thinking that John the Baptist was saying this about Jesus, and then other times it seems to refer to himself. This is a not in the quotation itself, when he says, uh, "For this is he who is spoken of, that's not about Jesus, that's about John." In verse four, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair. And a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now I'm gonna read from the book of Mark, the parallel account here. Again, not because we're comparing across uh, the gospels, but because we're gonna be, We really want to get this story in our minds for when we switch to the next story and the next story to compare all the stories together. But in the book of Mark chapter one, you can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read a few things from it. Starting in verse four, John appeared. Mark is a lot more succinct. You got to like the book of Mark. He's, he just really gets to the meat of what's being talked about. In Mark 1, 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So slight variations in the account here. Um, The things I'd really like to focus on here are the fact that the heavens were torn open. They didn't just open, they were torn open. And also the voice from heaven Rather than, this is my beloved son, it seems like, and in all the other gospel accounts it's confirmed, that this voice was speaking directly to Jesus himself. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So it's not that maybe other people didn't hear something, but it seems like these words are spoken expressly to Jesus Christ. Okay, so we all have that story in our head of Jesus' baptism. Refresh your course on that. Now turn with me to Matthew 17. Now we're gonna look at the transfiguration. Another really important event in the life of Jesus. If you actually look up like major events in the life of Jesus, it's like birth, baptism, transfiguration. I mean like all of these ones that we're covering are like very core events in the life of Christ. Now we actually surprisingly don't have a lot of text in the gospels compared to the rest of scripture. And so all of it is incredibly important, but there seems to be a consensus among scholarship that there's highlights in here that are meant to draw our focus a little bit more. Matthew 17, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Oh, I apologize, by the way, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, If you have NKJV, it shouldn't be terribly different. I just, I really like how the ESV sounds, and that's what my Bible's in, so that's what I've been sticking with, but I wanted to make that clear. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, in Mark 9, which is where we'll find this parallel account, I'm not going to read through the whole account. I just want to show you the parts of it that kind of add to this story overall. In Mark 9, verse 7, so the Mark account is very similar, just a little bit shortened. There are slight differences, slight variations, but not much. We're going to look at one more story, looking in Matthew 27. So if you want to flip forward to Matthew 27... This is about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty-seven forty-five. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge "'filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed "'and gave it to him to drink. "'But the other said, "'Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him.' "'And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice "'and yielded up his spirit. "'And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two "'from top to bottom, and the earth shook, "'and the rocks were split. "'The tombs also were opened, "'and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. "'And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection,' They went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now I'm going to read from Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. Again, a parallel account. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Okay, we are now very familiar with these accounts. We have read them through and through from two different gospels. Now, I only read, like I said before, from Matthew and Mark because I think that they are both trying to show us the exact same thing. They're just doing it a little bit differently and they notice different details. But the message, the purpose of their writing these sections is not just historical narrative and they're trying to preserve a story, which is also true. That's not their their main focus of writing these. So let's not focus so much on harmonizing the two accounts, even though they are pretty similar and they could be easily harmonized. But I don't want to compare Matthew's writing with Mark. I want to compare the stories. So what did we notice? Across these three stories, read together like this, taken out and just compared side by side, what do we notice? Well, the first thing that probably stands out, as it should, because I think it is the thing that our eye is supposed to be drawn to, is the proclamation at the end of each of these stories that Jesus is the Son of God. That's a really good thing to notice. If you picked up on that, that in each of these accounts, Jesus is called the Son of God, there's a proclamation that that happened, you're doing well. The authors are intentionally drawing our focus to this fact. However, There are also other really important things that connect these stories. For example, did you notice the symbolism of life and death in each story? With baptism, it's obvious, right? You are literally dying a water burial and then being raised back to life. We have a symbolism of life and death there. At transfiguration, you have this idea of resurrection and looking ahead to the kingdom of God. I mean, they're even talking about resurrection as they come back down the mountain. At the death of Jesus, you have his death, but then you have promise of resurrection and the resurrection of other saints around him. So life and death are throughout both of these accounts, tying them together in very intentional ways. What about the presence of Elijah in all three of these stories? Now, it's true that at the transfiguration, it's like the absolute clearest. It's like, there he is. He's standing right there. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. That's where it's clearest, but... At the baptism, you have John the Baptist, who is said to be a type of Elijah, wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. So, an allusion to him there as well. And the crucifixion, where is Elijah in the crucifixion? Where is he mentioned? When Jesus cried out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Eli, he's thinking Elohim, uh, calling out for God, but it also is a very substantial part in the name Eliyah, so Elijah and Elohim are very close, and he would it's a shortened version, Eli meaning, meaning God, but also could be referring to Elijah. And the people here seem to confirm this. They say he's calling out for Elijah. And so we have this mention of Elijah in all three accounts. Let's talk about the tearing first. So the sky is torn open in the baptism. They ascend the mountain to see God at the transfiguration, and the veil is torn at the crucifixion. Both uh, the first and the last account use the word schizo, which is to tear or to rend. And so even in word choice, he's using, Mark is using a very um, intentional word here. And both of these tearings represent entrance or access to God at this point. He speaks down to Jesus saying, you are my son. Uh, In the last, the veil is torn, meaning we now have access to the mercy seat, to the Holy of Holies to come before the presence of God. And then the disciples Peter, James, and John are able to see Christ in his transfigured state and there's no, there's seemingly no separation between these two. And then you have, like I said earlier, a major shift in the heavens. Um, with the baptism, the sky is opened. With the transfiguration, there's brightness and enveloping clouds. And at the crucifixion, there's darkness. So something is happening in the skies. There are heavenly signs going on. I also, this one is just, um, as I was studying this, I, I read a few things that I thought That could have some weight. The other ones, I think, are absolutely intentionally there. There could also be some symbolism of Moses here as well. Um, At the baptism of Jesus, it says he comes out of the water, or he raises up from the water. Moses' name literally means drawn out, like from water. That's what happened to Moses. Um, At the transfiguration, it's obvious he's stated as being there. And then... um, In Matthew's account of the crucifixion, it says the rocks were split open, which is also a very important part of Moses' life. So perhaps there's symbolism there. I'm not really sure. But either way, you have all of these other elements connecting these stories together. So aside from the Moses thing, everything else seems very intentional. Uh, You don't have to stretch very far at all to see that the writer was trying to pair these stories together after a fashion. And there's so many things that seem like coincidences. But the more we see the intentional writing by the biblical authors, the more some might question whether or not some of these things really happened, or if it's just fancy storytelling. Maybe, I mean, maybe the Elijah thing happened, but maybe it just happened at one, and then Mark added it into the others just for flavor. Some people would say that. I don't think that. I think it actually happened all three times. But Mark is choosing to notice it and write it down to draw our eyes to certain things. People could say, well, the tearing thing seems to kind of just be poetic license. It didn't really happen like that. Yeah, the veil split, but did it really tear? Maybe it just opened up. You know, we don't really know. How do we know how factual this is? Or the sky tore. Okay, it just, you know, we've seen the sun beam down before. It doesn't mean it tore open. Mark is just being poetic here. Is he? Did it actually happen this way? Is he using poetic license or is it both? Is it historically accurate and he's drawing our eyes to certain things as an author or a writer would? Remember, just because something fits almost too perfectly together is not proof of inaccuracy. God is involved and he can write the story any way he wants, even using free willed and flawed people. The biblical authors are bringing out certain parts of the story over others to cause their readers to focus on certain things. But that doesn't make it wrong or inaccurate. This is the God of all creation interacting with mankind to write the Bible. A true story doesn't mean it wasn't told without creativity or without any literary devices. It can be true and those things exist. But now that we've established that these stories are being connected for us by the authors and by God, what do we take away? What's the connection being made for? Sure, okay, great job, Mark. I can see baptism, transfiguration, crucifixion kind of connected. Nice. Isn't all of life, uh, Jesus Christ's life connected? Yeah. So what's the point? Why, what are you trying to show us? Well, let's go back to the most on-the-nose, in-your-face connection that these gospel writers make. The proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. From Mark's accounts at baptism, you have a voice from heaven seemingly for the ears of Jesus only. Again, perhaps people heard something, but he's speaking, the voice is speaking to Jesus. At the transfiguration, you've also got a voice from heaven expressly to the followers of Jesus Peter, James, and John, and a command is included. Listen to him. That's important. And then at the crucifixion, not a voice from heaven. Every other time up to this point, it's been a voice from heaven. At the crucifixion, something is a little bit different, and that's meant to catch our ears. We have an admission that Jesus is the Son of God from the least likely person imaginable. A Gentile centurion posted, and consenting to the death of Jesus Christ. Finally, mankind is starting to get it. After three times of this same statement being made, humanity is starting to recognize who this person is. In this one differentiation, after so many similarities, Mark is telling us so much. All he did was change one thing. But he made everything else so similar. He wrote it in such a way that we noticed the similarities, so the differences would stand out. He's telling us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He's telling us that mankind is finally able to grasp that for themselves. And he's telling us that the Gentiles, even the enemies of the Jewish people, are able to understand this life-saving truth. So what is true? in this story. Facts and truth are very closely related, but not exactly the same thing. In taking a typical approach in seeing man's hand in writing this story, skeptics might see contradictions across Matthew and Mark's accounts, not to mention the other gospel writers or other parts of the Bible or history itself. Believers might see the incredible similarity and be worried that these are just simply stories that are told rather than actual historical fact, but the right path to take is to realize the fact that because God allowed man to tell these stories from various perspectives to various audiences and for various purposes, not only are we granted a historical truth based in empirical fact, we are also granted a spiritual truth based on a much deeper reality. Because truth is not just facts. It's a lesson on reality. I got a quote from uh, Focus on the Family website. It says, facts are objects, articles, fragments of information, or bits of trivia, not to say that they're trivial. Truth, on the other hand, is all about meaning. To put it another way, discerning truth is a matter of interpreting the facts. There's a slight difference here. The biblical writers are not only communicating facts to us, but deeper truth from God, and the incredible precision of the facts shouldn't shake us. It should instead cause us to look deeper to discern the truth that Scripture contains.